The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled The Myelennial Generation, Managing the Boom of Innovative Therapy to Transform Myeloma Care and Enhance Patient Outcomes. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash YEF860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. And welcome to what I hope is going to be a very, I know is going to be a very exciting presentation. Uh, we are going to be talking about the millennial generation, which uh, we'll have to have a few definitions of that. Managing the boom of innovative therapy to transform myeloma care and enhance patient outcomes. Really excited to have you here today and uh, looking forward to a really nice presentation as well as active discussion. I want to welcome everyone here today and also people that are joining us virtually. Uh, tonight for panelists, we have myself, Nina Shah from the University of California, San Francisco. We have Dr. Shaji Kumar from the Mayo Clinic and Dr. Sagar Loniel from Emory. So I um, want to talk a little bit about making sense of innovation in myeloma care, as I printed out, as I uh, already talked about. Um, I'm Nina Shaw from Department of Medicine at UCSF, University of California, San Francisco, um, and I'm excited to talk about a really exciting, I would say, innovative, exciting field in hematologic malignancies, which is multiple myeloma. We've had so much innovation in the past two years, and even uh, now at this meeting, we're seeing more data. Um, so the shape of modern myeloma therapy is continuing to change, and I would say it's almost changing daily. We're really trying to build on past successes. And when we talk about a millennial generation of innovative therapeutics, uh, we're talking about a, a generation of therapeutics that's really rapidly expanded our options. So we know that we have PIs and IMIDs, but in addition to the proteasome inhibitors and the immunomodulatory platforms, we now have additional items, including CD38 antibodies. And I would say they are now part of standard upfront therapy. We're going to talk about the data that supports that. So there's tri both triplets and quads, depending on which patients you're talking about. Now, in relapsed refractory multiple myeloma, we know that there are potent antibody triplets. And then there are other drugs with novel mechanism of action, for example, inhibiting XPO1. And then, of course, in relapsed refractory multiple myeloma, we have BCMA direct options and even other targets as well, uh, looking at antibody drug conjugates, chimeric antigen receptor T-cells, also known as CAR T-cells, uh, and soon by specific T-cell engagers. So just a lot of therapy that we wouldn't have even been able to talk about uh, four or five years ago. Really, there's been an explosion, and hopefully we can put that all into context and understand how we may use these novel therapeutics and these new platforms in this millennial generation. So the only thing that we have to think about on the other side, though, is that despite progress with these newer therapeutics, challenges remain in delivering effective treatment to myeloma patients. So we have some issues, right? People are on, on therapy for a long time. Maybe they don't want to be. Uh, therapeutic attrition rates suggest that many patients are not exposed to the full benefits of the modern therapeutic arsenal. And that means that all patients are not necessarily getting all therapeutics. And if you look at the data, the assessment of patients with myeloma, and looking, for example, at this, this cohort of 22,000 patients not eligible for transplant it looks like only a little over half of them, so 57%, uh, receive only one line of therapy. And if you think about the fact that we talk about people in line six, seven, and eight, these people are not getting enough therapy. They're not getting enough opportunity for therapy. And we really want to change that as we go on in trying to educate our patients, our providers, ourselves, um, and the entire myeloma team to help patients get access to these new, very effective care, uh, or very effective options and therapeutic options. Now, also in the study, you can see that over there, there are 2,700 patients receiving transplant. 
only 21% received only one line of therapy. So for example, in this case, the transplant was the last treatment and they didn't receive subsequent lines of therapy. And if you think about even this data might be a little bit outdated, these people probably never had things like daratumumab, certainly didn't have any of the novel of immunotherapies that we're going to be talking about. So we really want to make sure that we make this something of the past and not of the future, that we make these therapies available, that patients have logistical pathways to get there, and that we provide education so that patients know about it and that providers know about it. So if you have multiple refractory disease and multiple myeloma, this is a clinical challenge. So here you can see that this is the mammoth data. This is a cohort of patients that have been exposed to multiple therapies, but most importantly, anti-CD38 antibodies. And we use this data a lot to show how patients are doing. You can see from the curves that these patients with triple-class refractory multiple myeloma experienced very poor survival and substantial hospitalizations and a clinically meaningful decline in quality of life. And that is important because as we already talked about, myeloma is an incurable disease and quality of life really plays into it, not only because of disease burden, but because of the number of therapies and the length of therapies that people have to have. In addition, we saw that over a third of these triple class refractory patients did not receive any new line of therapy, meaning that in a sense, they, they didn't get anything else. They, I don't want to say giving up, but it, there wasn't any other option for them. And those patients uniformly do very bad because they don't have any therapy that's addressing their myeloma. And for people who did receive an additional line of therapy, treatment with IMIDS, PIs, or anti-CD38 antibody was common. And that means that they had repeated things given to them or repeated classes of drugs, which means that there is an unmet need for new therapeutic modalities and new therapeutic options. And you can see for patients on the right-hand side that are not triple refractory versus those that are triple and quadrifractory and pentarefractory and each line of refractoriness, the ability to survive and the time that these patients survive is certainly less and it's clearly an unmet need for patients with relapse, refractory, and multiple myeloma. So today, we're going to have a seminar and tumor board session. It's going to be case-based, case-based explorations of primary therapy, maintenance choices, and options for relapse, refractory, and multiple myeloma. That's going to include antibodies, novel mechanism of action drugs, as well as BCMA-directed therapy. And we hope that you'll find this both educational and sort of a pathway for how we might be approaching uh, the myeloma patient now in this myelinale generation. We want to thank our partners, our Health3 Foundation, formerly known as Myeloma Crowd. I'm really excited that they're here today. Uh, they really support a patient-centric community that's enabled with data tools to improve patient outcomes and deliver faster cures. Um, I really encourage you to go to their website. Uh, it has been a real wonderful resource for us as providers even uh, to also have our patients engaged on this. So I want to say thank you to them uh, for being our partners today. So first steps of the myelinal generation, exploring potent upfront regimens. So um, we're going to have a couple of different sections today, and we're going to each split them up and talk about them, and uh, really hoping that we can generate some good questions for discussion at the end of the session. And we will have some case-based approaches and discussion between the three of us, so you get a better idea. Sometimes one answer isn't the correct answer. Sometimes there's more than one correct answer, and sometimes it depends on your experience. Um, so we're going to talk about a case, choosing options for an older transplant ineligible patient. So this is Robert, 74-year-old patient with standard risk ISS, that's International Staging System 1 myeloma. So he presented with symptomatic myeloma with standard risk disease, and at the time of diagnosis had 50% plasma cells without high-risk cytogenetics or FISH. His comorbidities include a history of CHF that's well-controlled, um, but he's determined to be in transplant ineligible after initial assessment, likely related to the CHF. Um, so now we want to talk about what the optimal 
upfront platform of this will be. And let's review the evidence. And for that, I'm going to turn it over to Dr. Kumar uh, for the subsequent discussion. Thank you so much, Nina, for that. Um, so we will, you know, we'll just, just review about some of, start with reviewing some of the basic principles, right? And also look at it from the context of how the field has evolved up until now. And obviously, we have seen the data with the bortezomib lenalidomide dexamethasone combination. Um, and um, the SWOG trial clearly showed that it improves progression-free survival and overall survival for those newly diagnosed patients. And subsequently, there have been smaller studies looking at more or less intense versions of VRD, like the VRD light, which again shows a quite comparable PFS of about three years in the patients uh, who are frail, who are older. And obviously, this, is, this has become the backbone for us to try and improve that initial therapy of multiple myelomas. You will hear from Dr. Lonia later on how we can add the monoclonal antibodies to the VRD backbone. So I think the, the key thing for the, the, new, the patients with uh, newly diagnosed myeloma who are ineligible for stem cell transplant is that where do we go from there? Uh, obviously, VRD is good. VRD light is very tolerable for this patient population. And I think the regimen that we end up using in these uh, newly diagnosed transplant ineligible patients um, obviously has to take into account a variety of different factors, what is unique to this patient population. So they are obviously older. They are more frail. They have less social support. They often have other comorbidities, and it's um, uh, and and they are likely to see a lot more toxicity uh, for this to the same drugs or drug combinations compared to the uh, younger patient population. So when you look at the different regimens, in addition to the bortezomib lenalidomide dexamethasone, now we also have the combination of uh, daratumumab with lenalidomide dexamethasone or the DRD regimen, as was studied in the Maya trial, which we'll go into in a little bit more detail uh, in the next few slides. And then there are other regimens that have been studied in this patient population in phase two studies, as well as in some of phase three trials, like carfilzomib lentex, as well as exasmib lentex has been studied in this patient population uh, in phase three and two settings. And also uh, the daratumumab in combination with alkylating agents, whether it be melphalan or cyclophosphamide, has also, have also been studied. So I think the, uh, the data that has really kind of taken us to the next level in this particular patient population is the data from the Maya study, which looked at adding daratumumab to lenalidomide and dexamethasone. And as you can see here, the addition of daratumumab significantly improved the progression-free survival. But I think more importantly, uh, it also has led to an improved overall survival. Um, and this regimen was very well tolerated uh, in this patient population. And one of the things that always comes up is, you know, how frail are these patient population, and does it make a difference? And when you look at the subgroup analysis, it's very clear whether you're talking about this older patient population who are frail or not frail, the, uh, the impact or the improvement that we saw with the addition of daratumumab appear to be quite comparable um, when you add that to the LENDEX. Now, um, obviously, one of the reasons why we, are, you know, or one of the advantages that we have seen with these newer regimens, particularly the ones that have added uh, the CD38 targeting monoclonal antibodies have been the depth of response. Uh, we are certainly getting a higher rates of complete response and uh, obviously more, more uh, minimum MRD negative uh, states in these patients uh, with, in these recent trials. And uh, the same thing was seen with the Maya study as well. A higher proportion of patients were able to get to be MRD negative and they were more likely to stay MRD negative if they were on the direct MUMAP containing uh, arm. And this obviously translated to a better progression-free survival for this patient population, particularly those patients who had their MRD um, stay uh, or sustained. 
So, um, so clearly, uh, in this patient population, you know, we have to take into account a variety of different um, um, factors um, when you decide on selecting the optimal regimen. So clearly now we have the VRD or the VRD light, uh, maybe more appropriately in this patient population. And we also have the Duratumumab Lendex from the Maya study. Now, does that mean we would not use doublets at all? I think there's still some places where you might start off with a doublet at least. And if you have a patient who is really old, who is really frail, and you are really concerned whether this patient can actually tolerate three drugs, I think many of us in the practice tend to start off with lenalidomide and dexamethasone, obviously a lower dose of dexamethasone, give a cycle, and then see how the tolerance is, and then start adding the, the third drug to the combination. Obviously, it also depends on how fast you need a response, right? Obviously, somebody comes in with renal insufficiency, we may not have time to these kind of scaled-up approaches, and then we might use, start these patients in, in, in more um, on the triplet right away. You also want to take into account what are the underlying um, uh, comorbidities, right? So we, we have two regimens, and sometimes we have to decide between the two, uh, and we don't have data comparing these two triplet regimens in a single phase three. Obviously, we have one phase three that shows uh, the PFS for the VRD is about 36 months, and we have the Maya trial which they, with the PFS that's over 50 months um, in that patient population. But there are certain patients, for example, somebody with diabetes and diabetic neuropathy, you certainly don't want to use a botasimib-based regimen. Somebody with high-risk factors, this particular patient had standard risk, which is much more easier choice. But if somebody had high-risk cytogenetics, then that may be a patient where you might want to think about using a VRD-based regimen to start off with. And if they really you know, do very well, you could even consider adding a fourth drug to that, as we may do in the younger patient population. So um, clearly now the question then comes up is, what do we do after we start these patients on the initial treatment, and how long do we continue the therapy? And maybe I'll stop there and maybe hand it back to you, Nina, and see what you know, the specific as points we need to discuss as well. Yeah, um, actually, this is great. And I'm actually going to go back a slide uh, just to talk about how are we determining what to do for our standard risk. So let's start with standard risk, our standard risk transplant ineligible patients. And I think the first thing is, okay, determining transplant eligibility, we'll put that aside for the discussion because that's a whole different discussion between different providers and patients. But assuming the patient is considered to be transplant ineligible for whatever reason, uh, what have you started to use you personally um, in the setting um, of, of being able to use any of these regimens? What is your choice right now? Yeah, I've kind of defaulted to the DRD regimen for these transplant ineligible patients as the initial therapy, except in certain situations, obviously, the um, the high-risk patients in particular. Right. But okay. in the standard-risk patients, clearly, the uh, DRD is the default regimen. And, Sagar, what about you? Yeah, I, th I think I would approach it the same way, DRD for standard risk and consider VRD for the high-risk. You know, Shaji, you bring up an important point, though, which is, in some patients, we may think about DARA RVD in the older, frailer patient population. And I guess my point would be, if you think you can give them a quad, maybe they're not frail, right? Because right. a quad is tough, certainly, for a frail, older patient. But certainly, some of those patients who look frail, you start them on something, yeah. two months later, they look much better. And that right. may be a yep. um, place to consider that. It's like evolving frailty. And it's, it's yes. some, it, it, that is a really good point because it's important that patients, are, if they're going to be determined to be transplant ineligible, that someone takes a look at them at the beginning and maybe two cycles in, right? So because people right. might have been, may have had myeloma-related morbidity, that that's getting better. Mm -hmm. uh, I want to talk about this issue about the doublet. And, uh, you know, we are always taught triplets, quads, that's the way to go. But you make a very good point that there are some 
people that are best served by doublet. And now that has changed. We have sort of different, you could give them VD, RDDD. What, what do you do if, if it's doublet? What do you like to do in this particular patient population? Yeah, I prefer to use the RD, but obviously those frail patients with uh, significant renal dysfunction, that may not be the ideal thing to do. And those are the patients where I would uh, and start using you know, maybe bortezomib dex to start with and see how you do. And, you know, certainly want to consider maybe even in those patients, a deratimumab bortezomib dex combination mm -hmm. in some of those patients coming in with renal insufficiency. Right. Uh, again, a triplet, but still not the two we right. talked about. Not the ones on the on the multiple yeah. choice test. What about you, Sagar? What about your thoughts on doublet? There? Yeah, you know, I, I will say my, um, my, my, my approach has softened probably in the last few years when I've probably beat up some older patients by hitting too hard early on. Um, in an older, frailer patient, less for longer, maybe better than more for shorter. So thinking about that that balance, I think, is really important. I, I will say, you know, the renal insufficiency case that, that, um, that Shaji brought up, you know, one of the quickest ways to reverse renal dysfunction is actually DARA. Um, mm -hmm. And when you think about sort of for me, the index older, frailer patient that got DRD was an 82-year-old who sailed through DRD, had three daughters that were always with her in the clinic for the first year, now drives herself to clinic and is doing fine. So I think DARA is not one of those that adds in terms of intensity of therapy. So I think, in fact, I think in our own practice, and I don't know what you do as well, is the renal patients predominantly have been using DVD. And once the renal functions improve, you can add the LEN into that mix as well. That's right. Yeah. And actually, we'll do one question now, and then we'll save them for the end. But yeah. I mean, my question is like, sometimes patients can't just handle development, either severe skin reaction or cytopenia. So like you, that transplant eligible standard risk, you start on DRD, then you drop the, so now you're doing doublet. Should you continue doublet or should you kind of bring in DVD at that point? I mean, personally, I would prefer to add the bortezomib um, and knowing that we're going to give it for four to six cycles and then obviously continue with the data after that. Yeah, I agree. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll say at least uh, one of the things that we often do is the skin rash comes up early on and then everybody's afraid to give it again. If you started at 15 or 25, I have a lot of people that had rashes that do fine with five. Um, and, and five may be a great dose. I mean, if you look at the original phase one dose escalation of LEN, the first patient at five actually had a VGPR, I think, if I remember correctly. So the lower doses can be fine. And I even go to 2.5 in the older patients just to get a little bit of that image activity in there because they may need less. Yeah. And, and again, mo most of the times you drop, stop the rivalumid, the lenalidomide, and you come back to it at lower dose, majority of the patients don't get a rash after that. This is assuming that this patient just couldn't tolerate at all. Right. So. Right. And actually, this is a really good segue into the next slide, which I think is, you know, this we have to talk about how we really manage these patients, right? You know, the Maya trial did have people getting DRD indefinitely, essentially, right? Until because PFS was the primary endpoint. But what do we think about maintenance lenalidomide in the setting of this transplant ineligible patients? And and if you're using RVD light, which some people still use, and it's not a bad option at all, um, do you go to len maintenance? Or if you're using DRD, do you do a maintenance dose? Or what is the real world way to approach extended therapy for these patients who are not going to go to transplant? Now, that's a good point. And I think the the Maya study just by design has locked us into using that data len maintenance maintenance. Uh, but if you look at the first trial, which is the RD, obviously that was LEN continued. Same thing with the VRD regimen, it was a LEN maintenance. So at some point, if um, 
I would drop the data first and then continue the line if I were to continue on just one drug. And, you know, somebody who started on DRD and they just want, cannot take both the drugs continuously, my first drug to drop would be data in that setting just because we have so much more data mm -hmm. uh, with the longer term len. Um, but I think one thing I do want to point out in this setting is the fact that we should consider dropping the dexamethasone after yes. the first eight to nine cycles, right. again, based on the Italian data as well. Yeah. Sagar, your thoughts? Yeah, no, I, I agree. I, I think the the use of DARA alone in the maintenance phase to me is a softer data. It's a data-free zone. With Len, we clearly have data. But, you know, if, you, if you're choosing DRD because of 60-month PFS, Indeed. you kind of need to continue both. And I agree, stopping the DEX makes perfect sense. But I think you want to give both if you want to be faithful to the trial. Yeah, I think what I'm seeing, and I don't know if you guys do the same, is that you get a few months. I mean, the, a lot of these patients, their disease burden drops nicely, very quickly. And then after, you know, a couple cycles, maybe eight cycles, you can really decrease that LEN dose. And you're still giving them the synergistic effects of having both drugs on board. And I agree, dexamethasone makes less sense, especially at the higher doses. I mean, I honestly sometimes don't even give more than 20 to start for some of these patients because uh, they are more frail. So I think these are really important um, points. Uh, just a real brief question about if you decide to do RBD light, how many cycles do you give before you switch to LEN maintenance loan? I try to give uh, 12 cycles if okay. I can, if they can oh. tolerate it, because it's once weekly, but yes. they're able to go on longer. But uh, I think Yeah, I'm between 8 and 12, yeah, depending I'm upon what you can get away with. But when I do modified RVD, I do it on a 28-day cycle, yeah. not the 35-day cycle, right. because I can't keep that no, straight exactly. in my head. <laughs> no other reason. Great. All right, well, this is a really good discussion. It leads us really nicely into the next segment. So we are going to go on to the next section, and we actually have another case, a little bit different here, also newly diagnosed. This is the Tumor Board 2 question, choosing options for a transplant eligible patient. So in this case, Margaret is a fit 68-year-old patient with revised ISS2 multiple myeloma. Uh, she doesn't have any major comorbidities. She has normal renal function, and she's determined to be transplant eligible after initial assessment. So Given the transplant eligibility, what's an appropriate induction regimen, and is there a role for a quadruplet? So for this, I'm going to hand it over to Dr. Lenniel. Thank you. Um, and this is uh, such a rapidly evolving area that I think it's, um, it's, uh, it's worth spending a few moments sort of talking through where is the level of evidence, and I'm sure uh, Nina will quiz us on how we approach it in our practices as well. But, um, you know, when you look at the highest level of evidence as um, – as certified or endorsed by the NCCN, RVD continues to be the Category 1 recommendation of choice. Uh, there are others that you can see that are there, including KRD, DARA-RVD, and even IRD. But I think if you look at what does, in fact, have the highest level of evidence, it is RVD uh, based on randomized Phase 3 data. Now, I want to set the standard, if you will, for where we are in 2022. And this is data uh, that we published two years ago from our group, which is 1,000 consecutively treated patients who all got RVD induction, had a transplant, and then got risk-adapted maintenance. And by risk-adapted maintenance, what I mean is LEN for standard risk patients, continuous the therapy. Uh, and then for the high-risk patients, they got RVD consolidation and maintenance for three years. And if they were still in remission at the end of three years, they just went to single-agent LEN after that. And what I think you'll notice here is that the expected PFS for all patients in aggregate was 65 months. So that's five and a half years was the expected PFS. The median overall survival was over 120 months. That's greater than 10 years. 
That's the longest PFS NOS reported in a large series in the modern era using great drugs like we have. And for those of you who are paying attention to the plenary session tomorrow, you will see uh, the randomized trial of RVD transplant versus RVD without transplant. And what I think you'll see is, uh, is data that certainly continues in my mind uh, to really be supportive of some of the concepts that I'm showing you here. More importantly, if you look at the standard risk patients in orange on the bottom curve, the PFS is 78 months. So if you're a standard risk patient, you get a transplant and single agent lens maintenance, that's almost seven years of progression-free survival from the time of diagnosis. And so when people start to talk about, you don't have to do a transplant, you can wait, what are you really giving up when the disease is at its most sensitive? Because we know that the PFS, at least from the IFM study, is actually shorter if you delay the transplant. So that first remission is when the disease is most sensitive. And at least in my mind, the primary endpoint in newly diagnosed myeloma should be prolonging PFS for as long as you can to give patients the best opportunity for long-term outcomes. Now, the question is, can you do better? And this is the European first attempt to try and do better. And this was the addition of DARA to VTD in the blue on the top versus VTD in the orange on the bottom. And notice that everybody got a transplant, everybody gets consolidation, and everybody in the blue curve gets maintenance. And this is where it gets tricky. Because when you start to look at long-term or even short-term outcomes like PFS, I'm gonna show you where on the curve things start to separate. And we, I'll let you guess what happens at that time point. But I think the fact that there's a randomization between DARA alone versus observation is a major weakness in this trial. And so when I look at this trial, what I'm really looking for is depth of response before and immediately after transplant, because that's where I think DARA really has its greatest impact. I'm not sure I can use this to really measure PFS. So one of the outcomes that was looked at in this, which is actually a very interesting endpoint to look at, is the idea that whether you got DARA up front or you got DARA in maintenance, it didn't matter. The PFS was the same. And for those of you who began, who remember the old story of rituximab, do you give it an induction? Do you give it in maintenance in lymphoma? It's the same story. You just need to get rituximab at some point. And in my mind, if you're going to give it, give it early so that you can have a less intensive maintenance therapy with just LEN alone, uh, as opposed to giving chronic administration of DARA in the maintenance phase where you may change infection risks and other things along those lines. And just for internal consistency, if you look at that orange curve, what you'll see is that the VTD without DARA and no maintenance had a median PFS that's almost identical to all the old trials of transplant without maintenance therapy. So it's not like the orange curve did worse. It did what we used to see when we didn't give maintenance. We now know that you have to give maintenance uh, in order to really prolong that PFS early on. So in terms of uh, what's more relevant for us in the U.S., the standard of care is not VTD, it's RVD. Uh, and the randomized phase two Griffin study probably gives us a better insight in terms of what the benefit of DARA could be. And if you remember from Griffin, it was almost like Cassiopeia, RVD with DARA, transplant, RVD with DARA, and then LEN plus DARA maintenance. And in the control arm, it was RVD, transplant, RVD consolidation, and LEN maintenance. So it's a much more apples to apples comparison in terms of what DARA really brings to the table throughout the treatment cohort. And what I think you'll see here quite nicely is that at every point in the process, the depth of response is clearly higher with the addition of DARA than it is in the orange curves without DARA. 
And that's important because this, to me, speaks to why you may want to think about using DARA as part of your induction therapy. You deepen the response early on. That then translates into better post-transplant PFS, translates into better post-transplant response rates as well, and likely higher rates of MRD negativity. And just to speak to that, again, what you'll see here is that MRD negativity clearly is better. If you look on the left, sustained MRD of greater than six months is almost threefold higher in the group that got DARA, and sustained MRD negativity of greater than 12 months is also threefold higher in the group that got DARA compared to the group that did not. Now, what you'll notice on the right side of this uh, figure is that at three years, the progression-free survival curves are, in fact, beginning to separate. They didn't separate for the first couple of years, which you could say, well, you know, this is really good therapy. The control arm is getting really good therapy. And in fact, if you track the orange curve with the RVD1000 series that I showed you in the beginning, it's almost completely superimposable. So that RVD without DARA arm is performing the way we would expect it. And it took three years to really begin for those PFS curves to separate. And that to me really demonstrates again, the value of adding DARA early on in the approach. Now you can look at who these patients were in terms of subgroup analysis on the whisker plot. Pretty much everything is to the left of the line here favoring DARA. They're not all statistically significant. This was a randomized phase two study, so it's a little bit underpowered to show some of these subsets, but certainly the Perseus trial from the EMN is going to answer these questions in a much larger patient population and will, in fact, be powered to address some of these questions as well. Now, we've talked a lot about DARA as the antibody to bring in. What about esituximab? And this is the German study group where they looked at ESA plus VRD versus VRD followed by transplant, followed by second randomization to ESA-LEN or lenalidomide alone. And what you'll notice, the primary endpoint is on the left side of this graph here, and you'll see the primary endpoint was MRD negativity at the end of induction, 50% versus 35, favoring the use of esituximab. And you may remember from the previous slides that that 50% is higher than we saw in Griffin at the end of induction. And the reason is, in the German study group, they gave six cycles of induction, not four, which is what we typically do in U.S. trials. And so the reason you're seeing that deeper at 10 to the minus 5 response rate is they got two additional cycles of therapy over what we would traditionally give uh, as part of induction therapy. So again, in this, uh, this 68-year-old uh, fit patient with RISS2 myeloma, no, no uh, major comorbidities and renal dysfunction, transplant eligible after initial induction. Uh, is a CD38 quad an option given her baseline assessments? And I'll pass it back to you, Nina. Great. Uh, I think this is a really good place for us to have a discussion about the things that have really been changing rapidly in myeloma. Uh, things even a year ago, I think we had different data than we have now. Uh, and I want to get an idea about how to apply this group in, of regimen in your practice. I know we, we said we were going to talk about what we do normally, and I think there are some differing opinions. So let's, I'll start with you, Sagar. How, first of all, are you giving quad therapy? That's the first question. Yeah, we're using DARA RVD as part of our induction therapy for standard risk patients. Yeah. Okay. And what about you, Shaji? We're doing exactly the opposite. And we always do <laughs> that part of it. So we use their, the quad primarily for the high-risk patients, where we are still using the VRD for our standard-risk patients pre-transplant. Yeah. I um, So... And I've gone back and forth too. Actually, after seeing the PFS data from Griffin that was updated at ASH, I do feel that we are getting there better with uh, 
quad. And so I've, I, we've switched to quad therapy as induction uh, in general. And, and the interesting thing about the data that was just presented today uh, is the MRD negativity sustainability, which you highlighted that at both six and 12 months, it's more possible to be having sustained MRD negativity with the quad. But even if you get to MRD negativity, the patients who got DARA with the, and got MRD negativity seem to be doing a little better than the patients who got MRD negativity without DARA. So, and that's not, we don't know yet, but I mean, we're really slicing and dicing numbers, but so that's an interesting thing about what DARA may be doing uh, in the induction settings. Okay. So if you do give, okay, if you were, if you were going to give DARA RVD up front, what would you do with the maintenance DARA? What would you do? So at least in our practice, because as we are using for the high-risk patients, the maintenance is always bortezomib and LEN maintenance post-transplant for those patients. Right. So it's, it's a quadruplet for four to six cycles, transplant, VR maintenance afterwards. Okay. And Sagar, what about you? Yeah. So we are using... So if you go back to, to RVD 1000 again, the median PFS for standard risk is 80 months. That's pretty good. And do you really know that the adding DARA is going to make that better? And so based on the fact that we don't know, uh, we only give the DARA for the first four cycles of induction and then go to single-agent LEN for the standard risk. For the high risk, we do KRD up front and then do KRD in the maintenance consolidation. But I, I think you've raised a really interesting question that I'm sure the three of us could argue about for hours here, which is, are all MRDs the same? If you said, and, and I interpreted the data the same way, that DARA MRD negativity has a longer PFS than non-DARA, from the IFM trial, the French version, transplant MRD negativity lasts longer, has a better PFS than non-transplant MRD negativity. Those to me are all important variables and tell me that MRD is a dynamic endpoint that needs to be added to as opposed to a standalone. But Sagar, also the Griffin DARA MRD, mm -hmm. those patients are supported by DARA and LEN yeah. afterwards for a longer period of yeah. time compared to the right. R the RVD arm where it's only LEN maintenance. Right. One of the reasons why we tend to, we haven't quite adopted, I mean, the data is so good with Griffin, but we haven't adopted for the standard risk patients is if you look at the Griffin trial, 32% of the patients in the RVD arm did not get LEN maintenance compared to almost 18% mm -hmm. of patients in the quadruplet arm that also feeds into that difference in the PFS that we have seen so far. So it'll be, you know, I'm sure we'll all switch to quadruplets, but we're just waiting for a little bit more data. Yeah. Yeah. And there was more dropout in the RVD arm as well. Um, so actually, because I'm a uh, mentee of Sagar, I have thought about what we do as upfront, and he's really drilled into me that the best you do is, is upfront is, is really important. These people are living for a very long time. They're going to their kids' weddings. They're doing a lot of important things, and you want to make that go as long as possible. So that's why I'm giving Daryl and me <laughs> uh, for the Griffin trial, because I feel like the PFS curves are 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 dividing out even beyond the induction part of it. I think the GMMG uh, data is actually very helpful to know that we are making a difference in induction so that I'm very happy to see that uh, with anti-CD38 antibody. But um, I, I, I think that there are some benefit to having this double at maintenance. Well, we will see. And there are side effects of doing that. And there's there are financial side effects and also just of downstream side effects, but we'll see what happens. So I'm just kind of doing it like the trial and we'll see what happens. I, I um, do think the value proposition of doublet in standard risk is that you don't give it forever, possibly. which is currently the way that we approach LEN maintenance. Yes. Treat until progression or toxicity. If LEN DARA or KR is going to be used in standard risk, but it means you can only, you only need to go for two years. Right. That's a win, right? Well, I will say that, uh, you know, in the Griffin trial that they as you know, stopped the Dara Len at the two years of maintenance, but many of and my patients just continued on Len because, right. I, of course, I am a believer in Len maintenance. So I think we may, you're right, we may get information about that. It'll be just that they got that extra two years. 
So great discussion. Um, so we talked a little bit about this. Uh, if you do dare RVD with the maintenance approach, we talked a little bit about this. So uh, Sagar was saying he just switches to R maintenance and Shaji was saying because they use this in high risk patients, he tends to use uh, PI based maintenance in those patients. And I said, I do DR maintenance. So you got three different answers from the three different people. So that's one of the great things about these types of symposia. Okay, we are going to move on to our next um, category. But before we go there, uh, we want to talk about practical points on CD38 antibody safety. Um, I think in general, antibody platforms have been extremely well tolerated. Uh, we know we just had this discussion about how patients are having, um, patients are frail, but they're still tolerating daratumumab very well. And in fact, there is a good amount of data um, and, and different studies, small phase two studies have looked at patients getting dara uh, in, in combination, uh, frail patients actually defined as frail. Uh, with frailty scores, and they are tolerating it very well. So I, I, I agree with this. We also know, just as a side note, that daratumumab is well tolerated in our amyloid patients, and those patients tend to be very sick. So we feel comfortable giving this uh, therapy. Um, and antibodies are associated, unfortunately, with hypogammaglobulinemia, so we do consider prophylactic IVIG. That is a different thing for a different provider, and it really is a discussion with your patient. Uh, in general, if patients are only on dara-based maintenance therapy or dara-based therapy because of induction or second line, then I'll really think about if they have infections or not and, and make that a reason to get IVIG. But you do have to treat the infections very aggressively. Um, as uh, you've probably all seen in the Griffin data, there were slightly more cytopenias with the addition of daratumumab. You have to think about that. Um, use of sub-Q daratumumab has essentially eliminated severe infusion-associated reactions. It's really been a nice uh, change in our practice, and it definitely decreases the chair times. We talked about the cytopenias in combination uh, with both. We talked about daravrd, but also daropomalidomide. Those are things that you have to think about. I do use a lot of growth factor support. And there should be some caution because uh, there are patients who are not mounting COVID vaccine responses that are on daratumumab. We've, thought, uh, we've talked a little bit about what you do with those patients. Do you give them Evusheld? Uh, some patients um, get multiple vaccines and still don't mount responses. Um, and we don't know. And, and the pandemic is going to change also in quality. So we don't know how those patients are going to be um, handled or how this is going to affect the patients. But if patients um, are compromised, you can make a case for them to get Evusheld if they're not making uh, antibody response to vaccines. you mind if I just make a quick Yes, question? please. Um, so the, the COVID question is really important because um, many groups, including ours, and I think Shaji's has and others, have suggested that if you're on an anti-CD38, you're not going to mount a vaccine. And many people are using antibodies as a surrogate for whether or not you've responded. But what Madhav and our group has shown is that many patients in, with myeloma actually mount non-neutralizing antibodies. Mm -hmm. So those antibodies are actually a false positive. They're not real. They don't protect you. And so I would actually argue that anybody getting a DARA should be getting Evyshield as protection unless you know they're getting something else that has neutralizing antibodies in it. Yeah, and I think the flip side of that, I agree with you, um, but you can also think there might be T-cell responses that we're not seeing that maybe the daratumumab isn't affecting. We don't know, but I, I would... I, I think it's better to err on the side of caution. I agree with you that these patients uh, should probably get Evyshield. Do you have any thoughts on this? No, I completely agree. I think the, we just can't assume that even if you see something, it's going to be really protective. Right. Because, yeah. Okay, perfect. So I want to talk a little bit about the Health Tree Foundation. As I mentioned, it's a huge resource uh, for our patients, and it's a, a really focused on patient empowerment. There's a lot of educational aspects of this, including Health Tree News. There's a Health Tree community events that patients can attend. There's podcasts and roundtables. We've participated in one just recently, um, and really uh, interesting uh, ways that patients can connect with 
each other, as well as looking at uh, trying to find a specialist and maybe one near them, trying to empower patients to understand that they may be eligible for clinical trials, and th therefore they should maybe reach out to somebody who has access to these clinical trials. There are myeloma coaches that are sometimes patients that have had uh, experiences. They're able to coach other patients through that. Um, there's a learning module part of it, the University of Myeloma, uh, which allows patients to become better educated for their own disease, um, and clinical trial finder as well, which I think is really good for patients who may not have those resources resources in the community practice or whatever practice that they're in. There's also now this Health Tree Moves app to try to encourage physical activity for patients uh, who are suffering with myeloma and seeing what they can do to keep themselves as healthy as possible for this marathon. Um, also journaling and social media uh, resources that patients can plug into. So it's really a large platform that has multiple ways for patients to be educated, uh, to be empowered through education, and also to engage their care team as well as, uh, which is just not only their providers, but also their uh, loved ones as well. So if you have a chance, check it out. A lot of exciting things going on there and a lot of ways that data can put, be put back into the system so that we can all learn uh, from patients' experiences. So now we want to move on to the next part of myeloma, planning the therapeutic boom in relapse refractory multiple myeloma, which is antibodies, targeted strategies, and CAR-T therapy. Uh, really exciting. I mean, just this this has been an explosive field. Um, I want to talk about the next case, the third case, choosing sequential therapy for a patient who's relapsing on lenalidomide maintenance therapy. And this is, I think, really a lot of the patients that we see in our clinic. So this is Bertrand, diagnosed as 67 years old, uh, revised IS stage 1 myeloma. Um, he had a pretty good performance status, got RBD, then transplant, subsequently received our maintenance, and then progression was noted after three years. I uh, had a little bit of renal insufficiency, but pretty well tolerated and um, a little bit of neuropathy. So first of all, how can we characterize this patient's relapse and what are the appropriate treatment options? And then to go into that, we're going to go into the principles of therapy with relapsed refractory myeloma. I'll turn it back over to Shaji. Thanks, Nina. Um, so I think, you know, one of the questions you had there, you know, is why do we characterize this patient's relapse, right? I think that's one of the things we always need to think about when you talk about disease relapse. We know all these patients are eventually going to relapse after the primary therapy, but there are clearly patients, a significant number of patients who after a transplant particularly, you see the monoclonal protein very slowly creeping up, um, you know, this biochemical progression, and there's always, I think there's still an open debate in the myeloma community as to what is the right time to start therapy. But I think it's important to, you know, akin to what we're talking about in smoldering myeloma, for example. But I think it, it is something to keep in mind. The kinetics of the uh, progression needs to be taken into account when we are uh, talking about the starting therapy. And uh, hopefully there will be like prospective trials examining that question as to what is the right time to start therapy. Now, we also want to take into account a few uh, important points that we didn't know when the patient originally was diagnosed with myeloma. One of them is the functional high-risk patient population. Now, we all have you know, high-risk characteristics that we can identify at the time of diagnosis that helps us prognosticate, but there are patients who may look like standard risk. You give them the primary therapy, year and a half later, they are back in your office with relapse. And those patients are high-risk. It doesn't matter whether they have a genetic marker or not that tells them it's high-risk. So that is something that you need to keep into, uh, take into account when you decide on the next line of therapy. And in addition, you also want to think about the aggressiveness of the relapse, not only just in terms of the doubling time of the monoclonal protein, but also are they presenting back with endogen damage like hypercalcemia, renal failure, and so forth. Now, a lot of patients um, tend to be, you know, especially if they present with more aggressive relapse, their performance status may be poor. Uh, they could have some residual toxicity from the previous therapy they had, for example, neuropathy or cardiotoxicity that they may have developed, and that needs to be factored into what regimen you're going to use for these patients. 
And then, of course, for the older patients, we want to also take into account some of the logistics of uh, getting these uh, therapies to the uh, patients. So, um, and so basically, disease-related factors as well as uh, patient factors need to be considered. Now, when you talk about the decision, you know, what the particular regimen you're going to be using in that early um, relapse, you also want to think about the cross-resistance across the drug classes, right? So, uh, obviously, if somebody is um, resistant to, let's say, lenalidomide, we know pomalidomide will work in those patients, but not the vice versa. And similarly, uh, somebody who is resistant to bortezomib may have some benefit from carfilzomib, but the reverse is probably not necessarily always um, uh, true, but either way, I think the PI resistance to one um, certainly, um, you know, increases the chance the other uh, drugs in the same class will not work. Um, but more importantly, I think, um, you know, what are the different regimens we have? As Nina already said, obviously, we have a boom in terms of all these new therapies out there. And that also gives us the options to give patients uh, treatments or treatment classes that these patients have never seen before. So one of the things that we, the guiding principle that we often use is you want to treat the patient with at least a two-drug plus steroid combination. So the triplets is the way to go. And we have seen that with from multiple phase three trials, not only in terms of PFS, but also overall survival. And it's not just any triplet. We want to try and give them a triplet that contains drugs or preferably even drug classes that they have not seen before. Now, this is an easy thing to do when you're talking about the second or the third relapse because we have so many different drugs. So we have the PI plus uh, image combinations, which could, you know, in somebody who has seen VRD before, we can certainly use either carfilzomib or we can use pomalidomide-based combinations. If they haven't seen monoclonal antibodies before, we have good data with combining the anti-CD38 um, with, with a proteasome inhibitor like carfilzomib and also uh, second-generation image like pomalidomide. And then we have uh, also other monoclonal antibodies like elotizumab. So I think the, the second and the third relapse, it's easier to pick a regimen where you still are able to deliver therapies that are non-cross-resistant. But of course, it becomes a challenge when you go through the third, fourth and fifth relapses. And of course, we'll hear about that, um, the new modalities from both uh, Sagar and Nina after this. So what is the um, data that is, you know, that kind of drives the selection of the regimen in someone who is relapsing after their initial therapy? So at least in the U.S. practice, Think about that patient in your practice who, is, uh, who has the first relapse, right? The majority of them are going to be on lenalidomide, whether they, because they were on len maintenance after transplant or they got a VRD therapy or DRD regimen and they continued on the uh, len maintenance after that. Now, there are obviously um, trials. So the antibody-based combinations, we have trials that have looked at the carfilzomib combinations um, as well as the pomalidomide combinations. So here we have um, the uh, Cantor trial that looked at uh, Daratumumab in combination with Carfilzomib dex. Um, the data looks pretty good in terms of combining the anti-CD38 with uh, Carfilzomib. The triplet does, did very well. Uh, similarly, with um, Daratumumab with pomalidomide and dexamethasone, uh, we have the Apollo trial that again showed that adding the CD38 in that first relapse. In, and again, these are patients who did not see that as part of their initial therapy, it clearly makes an impact in their outcomes. And um, now we have also have the data with the isotaximab, uh, very comparable to the teratimumab in terms of their efficacy from an anti-CD38 strategy. You can see that both the Icaria trial that looked at uh, is isotaximab in combination with POMDEX, quite comparable to what we saw in the Apollo trial with the teratimumab. And when you look at the Ikema trial, again, we see a significant improvement in the PFS um, and some updated data shows really nice PFS with the uh, isotaximab, uh, carfilzomib, dex combination.
And this is, again, updates from these same trials with the Apollo trial. You can see that with the median of almost two and a half years uh, follow-up, uh, the median PFS for the data palm decks was about 9.9 uh, .9 months. And you can also, and the responses did deepen. And when you look at the data from the MM, um, the 014 trial, this is, again, a slightly different patient population, but with the data palm decks, um, again, you can see a significantly, um, you know, really nice PFS with this regimen. Um, in terms of um, uh, the second line and later therapies. Now, uh, there's obviously um, for longer follow-up from the Icaria data as well, which have look, just looked at the cetaximab and POMDEX. Uh, the median overall survival with the cetaximab was about 25 months compared to about 18 months with the control group. Um, so significantly better PFS overall survival with uh, both cetaximab and dratumumab in combination with pomalidomide with longer follow-up from these phase three trials. Now, there are obviously, um, the, there's also going to be, uh, there's been updates with Aikima, uh, which shows a nice uh, PFS there of almost 42 months um, with the um, I, um, with the isotaximab carfilzomib combination. Now, the, there are other um, newer me mechanism of action drugs. So, they, for example, Selinexor uh, has been combined with botasimib in the Boston trial, so the SVD compared to uh, botasimib dex. And it's important to note that in the SVD arm, it was, again, a weekly botasimib compared to the twice-weekly in the control arm. And even with that, you can see that there's a significantly improved PFS with the addition of selinexor to the botasimib dex backbone. And again, opens up, um, again, you can't compare these different phase three trials in terms of the absolute PFS, but certainly demonstrates activity for this oral drug, um, which, you know, since this, there have been other combinations that have been studied, including uh, combinations of Duratumumab, Pomalidomide, Asulas, Carfilzomib, and uh, Selinexor. So, you know, again, with, when you look at the subgroups within the Boston trial, you can see that patients um, did benefit uh, irrespective of um, whether they had um, been treated with a proteasome inhibitor before or whether they were proteasome inhibitor naive. Of course, if they were naive, they did much better. Um, but um, again, activity in both these patient population. Uh, clearly, the safety is something that we need to um, take into account when you use drugs like Selinexor. Uh, it does cause uh, significant thrombocytopenia as well as significant GI toxicity. Uh, certainly, um, it appeared maybe not as obvious in the uh, phase three trial, and especially with the once-weekly regimen, uh, it seems to be a lot better tolerable than what we initially saw with the twice-weekly regimen. So obviously, you know, we have, we have these multiple different drugs that have been approved, um, and you'll hear more about the approved drugs, including the anti-BCMA strategy next, um, both in terms of antibodies like Belandamab, as well as um, CAR-T and the newer platforms like the Bispecifics. So hope, you know, thankfully, we have all these different drugs that we can use uh, one after the other in variety of different combinations to continue to control the disease uh, for longer periods of time. Obviously, we saw, you know, the data with median, you know, uh, overall survival exceeding 10 years. And that's obviously a significant part of that was the upfront therapy. But it's also because we have all these other therapies that have come since then that allows these patients' uh, disease to be controlled on a long-term basis. So um, maybe I'll hand it back to you, Nina, here for the discussions regarding this section then. Yeah, I mean, what you really pointed out is that we have so many options in this one to three prior line space. And yet, we also have this confusion because we're changing things up. So if you had the case here, this RVD transplant maintenance, um, how do you figure out what you do for the next step? Do you do CD38 in combination with palm-based or carfilzomib-based? What do you do, Shaji? 
So I think the easiest thing is the fact that the anti-CD38 strategy should be there in the right. first relapse based on everything we have seen. So the question is going to be, what do you combine that with? My preference in somebody who is truly refractory to lenalidomide has been, to be, has been using cofilzomib if they can tolerate the DKD or a ispeximab cofilzomib dex regimen. And if they have been off lenalidomide for a while before the relapse, then I've, it's, you know, it's a toss-up, So, but I prefer to use the POM in that setting because it's a little bit more convenient for those patients, especially when you're thinking about subcutaneous data. Yeah, yeah, it definitely is convenient for them to have that option. What about you, Sarah? So, you know, our approach in this context has been to go to POMDERA um, as, as first relapse. And at ASH this year, Nisha Joseph looked at that data from our center and showed that if you were three years or more from diagnosis, the benefit for POMDERA was actually quite good. If you were less than three years from diagnosis and you relapsed, those patients seem to have really short PFSs, and that's where we go to the to the yeah. PI plus DERA in that situation. But I, I agree that uh, you want a CD38. That's the backbone. And right. the question is, what are you going to add to it? Right. And I think that um, even today we saw some phase two data, the DERA KPD uh, from Andrew Yee, and that had a 94 95% overall response rate. It's hard to know what these things do after, you know, you need the longer term data, but I, people may even want to consider quad therapy in these patients, depending on how aggressive it's, their relapse is. It's the wave of quadruplets in the first relapse. That's exactly, if not up there. Um, so um, if we think about uh, this case again, you can see the same case. Now, now we're going to kind of evolve the case a little bit, treated with uh, RVD transplant, got rev maintenance, now had progression after three years and had mild renal insufficiency. This patient actually got Dara Palm Dex, achieved a VGPR, but this only lasted about 1.5 years. So as uh, Sagar was saying, this is kind of that three-year mark where the patient could have gone either way. So only had 1.5 years benefit from the Dara Palm Dex. And so we think, what is next for this patient? Um, now, we've talked about some of the drugs that we haven't used. Uh, what would you think about using as far as a carfilzomib-based regimen for this particular patient? What do you think, Sagar? Yeah, I mean, I think that's where we would go. And whether it's Cardex, at 56 twice a week, or whether it's carcyclodex, those would be those would be things that we think about in that situation. And what about the SVD regimen? Would you use this in this particular patient population, or particular patient, I should say? Shaji. You know, I, I think I would agree with Sagar. I, my preference is, again, just like we talked about DARA being, or the CD38 being important in that first relapse, I think the carfilzomib should yeah. be the backbone here. The question is, I mean, so you can certainly combine Selnexor also with carfilzomib. Um, that's not an unreasonable strategy given the phase two data, yeah. but certainly the carfilzomib, and then you can, you have the options of what you add to that. Yeah. I mean, if I was thinking about FDA approval, SVD is an option. Uh, and it's it's good that we have this data about the prior bortezomib exposure not affecting this too badly, because of course, this person is not actually refractory to bortezomib, right? They have not progressed on bortezomib. They just finished their bortezomib uh, in induction. So that's an option. Uh, but I agree with you. I probably would have gone with carfilzomib. And if we're thinking about things off-label, I think the SKD uh, is definitely a good option for these types of patients. And if you're thinking about these options, are you already thinking about using a BCMA therapy? You know, is that playing into your mind about what you're going to do? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I think agree. you know, it's um, right now with the availability of the BCMA targeted therapies, we are really looking to see if we can use one of those different platforms targeting BCMA at that time of the you know, the relapse. Especially somebody who's already seen the anti CD38, have seen the carfilzomib, have seen obviously the emits. Yeah. Okay. Now we're going to get to the fourth patient. This is Samantha, and this is about turning into BCMA for pretreated myeloma. So Samantha was diagnosed at 62 years old, um, RISS stage one, standard risk, got RVD induction, transplant, lend maintenance, actually did get a CR. 
that lasted for about three and a half years, um, but then had progression. And she also got DPD, achieved a VGPR, but at the one-year mark had new symptomatic progression with a new L2 plasma cytoma, um, also had M protein. She was treated with some radiation, uh, but then also got carfilzomib, cyclophosphamide, dexamethasone. Now, this only lasted eight months. Of course, we see this pattern, right? The more treatments you go through, the less time these these last. And after eight months of carcidex, she had progression. She did go on to selenex or bortezomib dex. Uh, it really didn't um, respond very much, had stable disease um, at most, and then had progression. But she's actually doing fairly well. You know, besides this L2 business and a little bit of neuropathy, um, she's actually doing pretty well. So what factors in Samantha's presentation can help inform these treatments decisions about what to do next. So looking at the NCC and guidelines for late relapses, so there's at least three prior lines of therapy. You do have the option for a BCMA-directed therapy. So you have CAR-T therapy now approved, as well as belantamab, methadotin. Uh, these are among the recommended strategies for the more heavily pretreated patients. There's a, some slight differences in the indications. Belantamab, methadotin is after five, five, four treatments, which include an anti-CD38 monoclonal antibody, PI, and IMID, whereas the idocaptogene Viclucel and siltocaptogene Odalucel, which are idocel and siltocaptogene, to sell respectively, BCMA CAR T therapies are after four prior lines. So there's a little bit of subtle differences about how you get there. It's important because your patients have to, of course, get insurance clearance if they're going to do that. So you want to make sure you set them up nicely. Um, and after at least four prior lines of therapy, if you've had triple or quad, I should say pentorefractory disease, then Selenex or dexamethasone is approved in this situation. Although, as we talked about, uh, the weekly dosing of, of Selenex or um, can be a little bit better tolerated. And this particular regimen of Selidex is twice weekly dosing, uh, which has some different uh, side effect profiles. So these are your options in this late line relapse. And, and for all that we talked about how we're doing so great in myeloma, kind of like, okay, there's an unmet need here, right? There are actually not as many options as you'd want. Now, what is the uh, rationale for targeting BCMA? BCMA stands for B-cell maturation antigen. And I, I really like this antigen as a, as, as a target for these very effective T-cell and antibody drug conjugate therapies because it's really expressed on these late stage B-cells and into plasma cells almost uniformly expressed on plasma cells. And, uh, actually not expressed on very many other types of cells, which makes it a very good target for effective therapy because you want to have a lot of on-target effect and have very little off-target effect. So this is one of the things that's been a nice find for us. And I actually really uh, encourage anybody who's in target discovery to keep doing this. We need more BCMA type targets. And we found a few, uh, but these are really important for these effective strategies that we have. I want to talk a little bit about IDACEL, uh, which is a BCMA-directed CAR T-cell therapy, a free relapse refractory multiple myeloma. Now, uh, this was sort of the first FDA-approved uh, BCMA-directed CAR T therapy, and this was based on this development of program uh, that the investigators were able to show. Initially, in their phase one trial, which is probably about five years now, um, they had this overall response rate of almost 90%, um, and this led to this phase two KARMA trial, uh, which looks at the safety, excuse me, the efficacy and safety of IDACEL and triple class exposed relapse refractory myeloma. As you can see on the right-hand side, the design of a CAR T-cell therapy really combines the best, both, best of both worlds with specificity on the extracellular domain of an antibody to an antigen, but on the intracellular domain has the functionality of a cytotoxic T-cell uh, with the co-stimulatory domains that include the, B, the 4-1-BB um, as well as the primary CD3 zeta chain. So this allows the T-cell to be very active when it's engaged specifically with the BCMA antigen in the this case. So 
the karma phase two data, the pivotal karma study, uh, showed the overall response rate in all dose groups to be 73%, which was on the right-hand side, as you can see. But there were actually several several dose groups that were dose cohorts that were explored because that we weren't really sure at the time um, what was going to be the best. And so you have people in the 150, 300, and 450. And you can see here that there was a dose-dependent effect. And the patients who received the 450 million doses, a flat dose of CAR T-cell therapy, had an overall response rate uh, of 81%, which is higher than the general group of 73%. Now, these responses tend to be pretty quick, and you can really see them within one month. There have been several posters, uh, last ASH and now even at ASCO here, showing that what you're doing in that first month with MRD status uh, and how your bone marrow looks actually can be very predictive of how the patient's going to do. And these patients got to CR at a median of 2.8 months, probably because it takes time to clear that myeloma protein to get to that IMWG response. Um, and you can see that we had a good uh, follow-up there a little over a year across the dose levels. Um, and you can see the depths of responses on the graph there. Now, we know that the progression-free survival uh, for all of the patients is uh, somewhere in the, a little over eight months. But if you look at um, all 8.8 months, but if you look at the dose levels of the 450, which is that third line, but the top blue line on the left, the PFS there is about a year. Uh, so that's the going forward sort of recommended dose uh, that this cell therapy is approved at. And so it's about, you can tell your patients about a year, that's 50% of patients do better, 50% do worse uh, in that dosing category. Now, what about overall survival? This was updated a year ago at ASCO by Dr. Anderson. And you can see there that the median overall survival uh, is about two years. And this does not change whether it's three lines of prior therapy or four or more prior lines. And the reason that's important to know is because the cl clinical trial eligibility in Karma was at least three lines. However, the FDA label is at least four prior lines. So we wanted to make sure that uh, patients were actually going to get the same benefit, whether they had three or four lines. Um, and I, I'll admit when this was first approved in four lines, I thought, well, that's not going to be so easy. But now we're doing all these things up front. It's actually kind of hard to get them to the fourth line uh, without thinking about um, about what, you know, what how this could affect the collection. And when you look at the real world data, uh, this is actually just hot off the press presented. You can see that the um, patients that did not meet karma criteria in the no um, did have, uh, were able to get some standard of care T-cells, and you can see that there's more patients being pentarefractory and less fit, but actually the safety is actually pretty comparable, um, and, and if you look at the... Um, the efficacy, patients are still able to benefit uh, from getting uh, ida cell therapy. And so I think it's important uh, that we don't just think about the patients who would have met clinical, clinical trial eligibility. And we can talk about what that means because that's a variety of different things that the patients had to be. Uh, certainly, we have a little bit more flexibility in the patient's eligibility for CAR T-cell therapy now that they're going to be getting therapy standard of care. Overall survival really didn't differ very much in these two cohorts these two cohorts of either meeting or not meeting CARMA-1 eligibility criteria. Now, there is another CAR T-cell therapy that targets BCMA that has also been recently FDA-approved, and this is Siltacel, and this is based on the CARTITUDE data. I want to take a moment to point out a little bit of difference in Siltacel versus Idacel. The extracellular domain of this CAR T-cell product binds to two different epitopes on the BCMA protein, so it's a little bit different. It may explain some differences, kinetics, or may not explain um, any differences. We don't know, uh, but we we know that it's a different product from the Karma product. So, Siltacel 
um, was evaluated in the Cartitude 1 study, and this is testing patients um, who had at least three prior therapies, including PI, IMID, and anti-CD38 antibody therapy, very similar patient uh, inclusion criteria to the CARMA-1 study. As you can see here, the initial efficacy that was read out showed an overall response rate of 98%, which is very impressive, and more so that the depth of response, also very impressive, at at least 95% of patients getting at least a VGPR or better. So that's a 90% reduction in their myeloma markers. Now, we, again, had hot off the press from this year uh, to your uh, post-last patient results. Uh, this was presented this morning uh, at ASCO, and the overall response rate, of course, remains 98% because these responses occur quickly. Um, and actually, 83% of patients did achieve a stringent CR with longer follow-up. Uh, we actually were not able to yet get the median PFS. I was hoping we were going to find it at this uh poster, but it was not there. And in fact, it turns out about 55% of patients at the 27-month mark, a little over 27 months, are still doing well, which means, you know, we're heading into that 27, 28-month mark that uh, we might see this PFS. We have, we don't have the updated data yet, but uh, very nicely, there's still being, this Silta cell product is being um, explored in multiple CAR-2 platforms, which look at both earlier relapses, different um, aspects of lenalidomide refractoriness, um, as well as looking at this as instead of transplant as well. Um, Cartitude 1 has some um, nice PFS data. I think what you can see here, um, the PFS rate at that top there is best for the patients who get uh, into a really good response. Uh, similarly, for people who get MRD negativity, those patients also do very well. Um, I'm really looking forward to seeing how much uh, survival we can sort of squeeze out of this product. And the reason is that it's a one-time treatment, similar to Idacel. And we've already talked about how patients get therapy after therapy and have to get cycles and cycles of therapy. This is just one therapy. And so it's going to be really interesting for us to know uh, whether we can give this therapy and have a long PFS and or long overall survival for patients with such heavily pretreated disease and maybe even better potentially if we use this as an earlier treatment modality. So looking at BCMA for pretreated myeloma, uh, we talk about our patient who had had four lines, right? RVD, transplant, and maintenance, that's one line. DPD, second line. KCD, third line. And then had SVD, four lines. So this patient did have four lines of therapy, had had exposure to all of our classic drugs. Uh, so this patient, I think, and the patient has pretty good performance status, would be a very clear candidate for CAR T-cell therapy. Uh, so I think one thing that we want to talk about about is refer to, referral to a specialized care area that that can give you, not all, you know, not all hospitals can give CAR T-cell therapy. You have to go to a hospital that can. Um, and I really advocate for patients to be referred as early as possible. Of course, I love to see patients in the front line for transplant uh, eligibility, but let's say that didn't happen and they got treatment somewhere else and they've had a progression. Even that first progression, those patients should be evaluated, I would say, at a specialty center. First of all, there might be a clinical trial of CAR T. That might be there. But secondly, you want to keep them in the mix because you want to know what they're getting next. There are some factors that might uh, be associated with CAR T cell therapy efficacy, and you want to keep that in mind when choosing possible therapies. Uh, what do you guys think about how early a patient should be referred to a cell therapy specialty center? Shaji? I think it, um, just, I completely agree. I think having, uh, looking at some of the clinical trial options would certainly be something to be considered early on. Um, but um, the, you know, the majority of the patients are getting treatment in the community and it, sometimes it becomes, you know, it's, it, you have to factor in the patient convenience yeah. going to a, um, a referral center. Um, but certainly I think it's a discussion you need to have probably at the time of that third relapse, at least second to third relapse. So, Yeah. What about you, sir? Yeah, no, I, I think the same, the same point. I do think 
there's value in having touch points with a big myeloma center, early relapse, mid, late, uh, to sort of make sure that we've got the best optimal salvage therapies for them available. But before or as they're starting third-line therapy is a good time to, to check in with the cell therapy center. Yeah, and I actually, I mean, I'm really against changing my practice that we get to the third line and I start getting them evaluated in a way for CAR-T because I know as soon as they progress to go to fourth line, you don't have to have these patients actively progressing to get CAR-T therapy. That's actually not in the label. So they could be on fourth line therapy, get their disease controlled, and that might correlate with better response and then get to the next uh, therapy, which would be CAR-T, if there's a slot, which is also a challenge sometimes for us. Um, so want to think about different general principles of CAR-T therapy. Uh, so for I to sell the recommended doses somewhere between 300 and 460. We really try to get to that 450 dose. As we were talking about, um, we really want to get patients referred to a certified healthcare facility uh, that is able to give this cell therapy. That's true also for Siltacel. Uh, and there, the dose range is 0.5 to 1 times 10 to the 6 uh, T-cells um, per, per uh, single dose infusion. And in this situation, they also have to be referred to a specialty center. Um, we think about for I to sell not using um, the leukodepleting filter. That's at true for most cell therapy products. You want to make sure that they're going to be able to get their cells and not going to be filtered out. Um, most cell therapy products also require pre-medication. We usually use an, uh, something like Benadryl um, or antihistamine and Tylenol. We really try to avoid the steroids. And then we also think about how do we manage these patients sort of pericarty. So we talked about already that in both of these situations, they would have to go to a certified center. And how much of this can we do outpatient versus inpatient? All of the CAR these CAR-T cell therapies do cause CRS or cytokine release syndrome, and that happens between 84% for I to cell and almost 100%, 98% for uh, or 95% for Silta cell. So you know these patients are probably going to get CRS. The timing is not necessarily clear. Seems to happen a little bit earlier with I to cell versus Silta cell, but they have to be monitored. And depending on what kind of structure the hospital has, they may be able to be partly outpatient but partly inpatient with a quick in, uh, pathway to get admitted. Um, all of these have a REMS program. You have to make sure that um, you've registered and you've done training, that the staff has done training. You have to look for later toxicities, which may include um, things like neurotoxicity, which tends to happen generally a little bit after CRS, and something we've called a macrophage activation-like syndrome, mass-like syndrome, where there's clearly an inflammation or inflammatory pattern in the bone marrow causes some cytopenias, elevated ferritin, and these patients may be at risk for prolonged cytopenias, which may be a side effect of getting this very effective therapy. So again, have to talk with your community provider, not only to get the patient referred, but also to manage the patient afterwards. Also some uh, IVIG, et cetera, prophylactic antimicrobials. All of these are things that to be considered for a patient who is going to consider going to CAR-T therapy and has undergone CAR-T therapy. Um, Thinking about CRS and ICANs with BCMA CAR-T constructs, as I pointed out, CRS happens almost uniformly uh, for Siltacel, 95%, Idacel, 84%. Pretty much, uh, it, they're variable, and I think there's some differences in kinetics between these two products, median time to onset for Siltacel, seven days and one day for Idacel. ICANs um, with 17% for uh, Siltacel, 18% for Idacel, but there were some sort of 
off-target um, toxicities, neurotoxicities, and sultacelsine in about 12% of patients. And so that has to be uh, looked after as well. These, these can be late onset as well. Um, infections are there. Of course, when it's fever and cytokine release syndrome, it's hard to know what the difference is. But there are there's significant immunocompromise that needs to be managed both from a preventative aspect and an aggressive early management. And again, cytopenias, delayed neurotoxicity, this can happen. And um, we have seen the delayed neurotoxicity in the cell program. And microscopically, I would say in the Ida cell, but this is definitely a signal that we saw uh, in the CARTITUDE 1 platform. Um, so there's sort of three tenets for CAR T cell therapy and patient referral. So most patients with relapse refractory myeloma can be considered potential candidates for CAR T therapy. I would say maybe sort of the, the, the no go sometimes might be dialysis because of the fludarabine. And we're still working on that as a myeloma community to get more access for these patients. The toxicity is different from transplant. I, and I, I don't even like to compare the two because they're just different ways of treating myeloma, right? One is an alkylating agent, which is transplant, and one is an immunotherapy. So of course, there's going to be different toxicities. Uh, they just both have the word cell in them. So, But other than that, they're very different. And I really think, as we talked about, early referral to a cellular therapy center is critical because a lot of logistics, and you have to train the patient again, like, okay, I'm going to have a similar time scale. I got to come to the center, get collected, go home, maybe get bridging, come back. You just have to, it, it's, it's hard for patients to know this in one day. So it's good if they can have multiple conversations with you. All right, we're going to go to the fourth case, last case. Um, so what if Samantha had presented with a challenging comorbidity? Uh, maybe she has underlying coronary artery disease, limited mobility, logistics are a problem, and she's not eligible to go to a CAR-T cell therapy. How would we have options that would be different for this patient? And I'm going to turn it over to Sagar to talk about this particular option. Yeah, thanks, Nina. I think um, this is a little bit more challenging situation, whether the changes in comorbidity occurred as a consequence of all those years of treatment that were given before or whether they were underlying at the outset, uh, clearly this is somebody who um, probably should give you at least a little pause in terms of moving forward with a CAR T cell uh, and certainly not having access to specialized care. As we talk about healthcare disparities and access in general, this certainly is a big issue uh, for a number of, of, of areas in the country, particularly rural areas where you know, driving three, four, five hours uh, uh, to get to a center is, is a bit of a hardship on a family. So I think we do need to know how one might approach a situation like this were uh, such a patient available. And if you look again at NCCM guidelines for late relapses, uh, what you'll see as available uh, in terms of BCMA, obviously, as you just heard, Idacel and Siltacel are potential candidates or, or options for that patient, but Bellamaf uh, probably fits the profile of this patient a little bit better, uh, and being off the shelf certainly is a reasonable thing to consider as well. Now, there is also another option in Selenex or Dexamethasone. If I remember correctly from the case, this patient actually got SVD. Uh, and so has already seen Selenexer, uh, but certainly in my mind, the two non-cell therapy approaches that certainly have FDA labels in this situation are Selenexer Dex and Belantamab Mafidotin. So when we begin to think about Belamaf or Belantamab Mafidotin, uh, it is an antibody drug conjugate, which is a primary mechanism of action, but it also does engage immune activation through ADC and ADCC uh, and other things along those lines. And, and I think that that's really important because what it speaks to is what are the optimal 
partners for Bellamaf when you think about combination therapy. And in this context, those can often include, for instance, IMIDs, which we know, even if the IMID is not effective at killing the myeloma cell, the IMID may be effective at activating immune system, activating T cells and NK cells, which may then be able to kill the cell through ADCC or ADCP. And then there is, of course, immunogenic cell death, which may be a partner effect as well. So these are all potential advantages of an immune-based therapy like belantamab mafodotin. And when you think about data and how to treat a patient with refractory four prior lines of therapy myeloma, sometimes less, maybe more, in the sense of this is actually a drug that's given every three weeks. They don't have to come into the office a lot uh, in those three weeks. So from a patient-friendly perspective, this certainly does represent a very reasonable option as well. Now, this got FDA approval through the DREAM-2 study, which was a randomized phase 2 study comparing two different doses of Belomath, either 2.5 mg per kg or 3.4. And it is important, as we discussed in the poster uh, discussion session earlier today, the 3.4 actually was the MTD from the phase 1. The 2.5 is the dose in the phase 2 that actually fell out as the better, more safe dose to give. Uh, but the MTD was, in fact, uh, the 3.4 uh, dose that we don't use any longer. And what you saw was about a 30% response rate. You did see VGPRs and even CRs in some patients here, which speaks to the novel mechanism of action. And more importantly, what you did see was a, a long duration of response. And so when you think about uh, uh, what this means in the larger context, daratumumab was approved as a single agent in refractory myeloma with a 30% response rate and a DOR between 9 and 11 months. Carfilzomib was approved with a 30% response rate and a DOR between 8 and 10 months. So this is certainly in that same ballpark, and because it's a novel mechanism, I think really does have legs, if you will, in the context of quad uh, uh, four prior lines of therapy and triple-class refractory myeloma as well. Now, one of the things uh, that I think was really important as we begin to think about combination therapy with Bellamaf uh, is, is combining again with IMIDs. And the Algonquin study was probably the largest study that's been done today, combining Bellamaf with pomalidomide and dexamethasone. And one of the things that I think is really important is you're seeing high overall response rates, even in triple-class refractory patients. So IMID, PI, and DARA refractory patients 100% overall response rate, 72% VGPR or better. And I think that this is really important. The other highlight of this is really looking at alternative dosing schedules. And when you look at the DREAM2 study, if you take all patients who got Bellamaf at 2.5 milligrams per kilogram, what you'll notice is about 70% of patients had some form of keratopathy. Only about 18% had changes in visual acuity of two lines or more on the Snell and I chart. So most patients may have had dry eyes or some mild changes, but some patients did have inability to read, inability to drive that was reversible in almost all of those patients. And this is sort of a, an onion plot, if you will, of the keratopathy that can occur, uh, again, with or without symptoms. And what you see here is that the BCVA change of 2050 or more, which is two lines on the Snell and I chart here, you can see it's the sort of Duke blue, I guess, maybe uh, the second uh, circle down here at the bottom, uh, that, that that occurred in about 18% of patients. If you look at all patients, it was 72%, but a majority didn't have major symptoms or dry eyes was the major symptom that they saw. 
Now, the take-home messages in terms of Bellamaf for the management team are that you need to reassure the patients that if you need to hold the dose, it's okay. In fact, in the DREAM2 study, most patients that had dose holds of even 12 weeks or more actually maintained or deepened their response. Only 15% of patients actually had progression during that dose hold. So it's okay to hold therapy to allow keratopathy to resolve. The second thing I think that's important is that you may find that a patient is responding, but every three weeks isn't the right frequency for that patient. And so it's okay to say, you know, every time I give two doses in a row, I end up having to hold the third dose. So maybe I need to dose that patient every six weeks. Maybe I need to dose that patient every four weeks. Maybe I need to think about dosing every eight weeks. Those are all things that are being looked at in combination trials and really maybe things that you learn from patient to patient that helps you manage that patient in a way that gets efficacy of the drug, but at the same time reduces dose holds or modifications because of developing grade three keratopathy. I want to talk a little bit about bispecifics therapy. And I think, Sagar, you're you're talking about this one, right? Okay, great. Yep. So the other area that I think is really emerging rapidly, and there certainly are data sets that are being presented at the meeting tomorrow uh, and potentially Monday as well, we're looking at additional off-the-shelf approaches to targeting BCMA. And these really involve the BC, uh, the bi-specifics. And um, I'm sure you've heard all of us talk about the later patients are in their treatment, the less healthy their T-cells are. But the bispecific data really almost speaks in the face of that not necessarily being accurate. Because what we're seeing with the bispecifics, whether it's teclistimab or elranatumab, or there are three other bispecifics in development in myeloma, all targeting BCMA, they all have response rates of over 60% in the context of unhealthy T cells. Um, and so I think we really need to understand what are the optimal ways to use this. As you can see, their main mechanism of action is bringing a T cell right next to a myeloma cell. And interestingly enough, there is emerging data suggesting that while myeloma is a blood cancer, it may behave a little bit like a solid tumor in that excluding T cell immunity from the core mass of tumor cells may be a reason why they escape immunologic surveillance or control, and that bispecifics may be a way to break that by bringing T cells right next to myeloma cells, allowing them to potentially be targeted and ultimately killed. So this is really an exciting era, and we're going to see a lot more incorporation of bispecifics in earlier relapse, and I think even trials are bringing it into the induction therapy setting right now. And again, there are abstracts that are being presented. Uh, My colleague, Dr. Nuka, is presenting abstract number 8007 tomorrow uh, on uh, Majestic uh, 1, which is teclistimab, showing an MRD negativity rate of about 25% uh, and about 17% at 10 to the minus 6. Remember, this is like five prior lines of therapy. So we're talking about MRD negativity in five prior lines of therapy. Uh, and so I think that's an exciting abstract. And then uh, Dr. Jakoboviak is going to present an abstract using l uh, which is the magnetism MM1 study. Uh, and this is looking specifically at patients who are exposed or resistant uh, to BCMA-directed therapies already. Uh, And so this is, again, another important subset when we talk about sequencing BCMA-directed therapies, how this may work overall. So I'll turn it back to you. Great. Um, Just want to give a little shout-out again to the Health Health 
Tree Cure Hub, uh, which is a patient data portal. It's a, it facilitates patient data contributions and surveys and studies. And like I was saying, really helps us to understand uh, and helps patients to understand more what's going on with our diseases. We're learning from patients in this very comprehensive data set uh, with over 10,000 participating patients. So it's a lot of data. Uh, and these data sets are validated and have things like labs, genetics, prior treatment, PROs, and demographics. So I think getting more information in there helps us to learn more about patients and get more information out there. So uh, these are really new develops and developments in myeloma care, and these can create opportunities to share data directly from patients. And uh, it's really been nice to see this evolve, and a lot of patients have been involved uh, in this effort and have really benefited from uh, this platform. So we have actually a good little section of time, some five minutes for symposium summary and audience Q&A. I'm going to, uh, we can do mic passing, but I'm going to start with one question that came in through the iPad, uh, which is talking about high-risk patient in the sense of having three copies of one Q. So this would be considered one Q gain, not one Q amp, uh, which are two different things. And I, I actually struggle with this too. So I want to know, what are you doing for one Q gain? So I, you know, I consider them as high risk as well. And I think, you know, we have data that we have looked at from the Mayo data set that was published where one Q is, and recently the JCO came out the R, the second revision of the RISS, which also demonstrates the prognostic value for the one Q gain. Um, I think both are prognostic, certainly 1Q amplification, since we have a more um, poorer outcome compared to 1Q gain, again, depending upon which set you're looking at. But certainly both of those patients, I would treat them as high risk at this point. In time. So you would do DARA RVD, then the, VD, um, ERD, maintenance. Okay, Sagar, what do you do for the 1Q gain yeah. or AMP? Yeah, you know, the one extra copy is, I, I think it's, it is hard to know what to do. It's clearly bad, one extra copy, when there's other cytogenetic abnormality. Yeah. So that one to me is a no-brainer. When it's just one extra copy without anything else, at least in the RVD1000 data, it's not quite as good, but it's not statistically different. Um, and since 50%, almost 50% of patients have some changes in, in chromosome 1, I, I'm a little hesitant to, to, to make changes in maintenance therapy, but I, I think it's a, it's a controversial area. And I think it's interesting to know that the Forte data did well in high-risk patients to get this uh, yeah. KRD transplant KRD, except in the 1Q AMP patients. So it doesn't make sense. It, yeah, so so right. I, it, you would think, okay, we'll give carfilzomib, which is my right. go-to for high risk, but uh, that's one of the patient data sets that doesn't support that for 1Q. Right, but I think it, it's very important because the endurance trial showed exactly the same thing, that the 1Q AMP did not benefit the 1Q gains Gain. to, okay. to some extent. So I think... 1Q AMP may reflect biology. That's more than just the yeah. extra copy. Yeah. yeah. So that's something to keep So maybe KRD could be something we would give. At least the 1Q gain certainly okay. could be considered. Yeah. Great. Um, any questions in the audience live? Don't be shy. Okay. Um, so uh, what are you most excited about in the future treatment of myeloma? Give me like a five-word answer. So I think the most exciting thing is getting the immunotherapy to the first part of the first-line therapy, I think is going to be the biggest change in the next five years. All right. Sagar, you agree? Yeah. I, you know, I think incorporating both cell therapy and the um, uh, the antibodies, whether they're bispecifics or specific targets, figuring out how to put them all together in a treatment plan that gets deep responses, but then lets us stop treatment. Yeah. I think the continuous therapy mantra has gotten us where we are. We need to challenge ourselves to do better. 
I agree. I think uh, having seen patients go three years after CAR T therapy reminded me that people actually have a life uh, outside of myeloma. And if there's something we can do uh, with bispecifics and uh, our novel therapies to make dex-free upfront therapies or second-line therapies, it'd be great. I really think that there are a subset of patients uh, for bispecifics that should not get indefinite therapy. And that's the place I really want to do more research about stopping therapy because I think the T-cells do get exhausted. And so um, it'd be good if we could have maybe eight cycles in your first line and that's it. You know, we'll see what happens. So so I, I really encourage novel cli- clinical trial designs for all of us to think about these things. Um, do you have a preference of CAR-T versus bi-specific? You know, I think the CAR-T results are really outstanding, but the problem is the majority of our patients cannot access that at this point. Right. So if access wasn't an issue. Access then. is the issue. Yeah. Um, I think in that setting, I see the bi-specifics really filling in a gap uh, once they uh, get to the get to be approved. Okay. Sorry, yeah, I know you always say they're one and done, but they're one and done until they're not. Um, and unfortunately, there's no plateau on that curve. Uh, and so it's not ALL and it's not diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. So I, I think putting the two of them together, giving a CARB and then following up with a bispecific if they're not in MRD negative CR, that's a way to sort of get longer progression, maintenance, if you will, uh, and lets you um, uh, deal with the fact that they don't have long persistence. Yeah, actually, I just saw this poster from the Mayo, really great data from you guys about uh, MRD negativity and getting that within the first month. And you don't get there. Those people should go on clinical trial. Uh, and, and I think that's really great data that you guys have. Um, with that, any other questions in the live audience? Yes. So now in community setting, they are offering us that commercial availability of MRD testing. So if I have a myeloma patient, I do MRD. So how often I do it? MRD negative once is good enough or means like, can you expand on that means, or should I change treatment if I don't achieve MRD negativity? Yeah, this is a very important question. And I think we struggle with uh, not having a lot of data to support using it as a way, as a tool to change therapy, right? I think it's a great prognostic factor. Um, And I think um, when you, um, you know, we don't routinely do MRD testing necessarily in all the patients outside of clinical trials. I think clinical trials is where we're going to learn a lot from them. In our own setting, where we use the data mostly for the MRD data, you know, the patients with high-risk disease, where we see that, you know, again, without prospective data, but just based on the fact that the patients who have high-risk disease who don't get MRD negative have really poor outcome, you know, those patients, we tend to often change therapy or try to deepen therapy, intensify therapy if they don't get to be MRD negative. What are the time points to do it? I think these are the time points where you might be already, pla- you know, pre-planned change in therapy, right? You're going from post-transplant, you're starting maintenance. That may, in a high-risk patient, if you're MRD positive, that may be what may make you decide to give few cycles of consolidation and then go to maintenance. So I think points of pre-planned change in therapy would be the best place to do MRD testing right now in the standard of care uh, scenario. So Great. You wrote the paper, so I'm not going to disagree with you. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. You're the expert. Great. So this has been a wonderful symposium. Thank you so much for being engaged. Uh, It's been a great discussion uh, with Shaji and Sagar, and we want to say thank you for joining us. This activity is certified by PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. This activity is developed with our educational partner, Health Tree Foundation for Multiple Myeloma. Remember to download the slides and practice aids. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash YEF860. This activity is supported through educational grants from Bristol-Myers Squibb, 
GlaxoSmithKline, Janssen Biotech Incorporated, administered by Janssen Scientific Affairs, LLC, and Karyopharm Therapeutics.